Hello and welcome to another magical stream. <laughs> I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we'll be going back and picking up where we left off almost a year ago at this point with the esteemed Aziz of History of Westeros and talking about Bloodraven again. In the previous live stream, Aziz and I talked a lot about Bloodraven's young life and in particular his relationships to his half siblings, including Shear Sea Star, Bitter Steel, Daron the Second, Damon Blackfire, and sort of trying to get a feel for his personality. Because I think that's one part of his story that's a little underdeveloped, partly from George, because we haven't seen this time in the story. It hasn't really been a narrative, it's more been presented as history. So that's why we chose to do that. Go back and really get a feel for him as a person and less as the story element that he's often treated as which is i think fair to say for blood raven that is how most fans treat him they treat him as sort of a force of nature a force of destiny or fate and his effect on bran in particular unless as i just pointed to myself when i said bran i'm not bran they focus on his utility to the narrative unless as a person and george always puts so much effort into their personalities that I thought it was a good time to also go back and look at him from that perspective now. So what we're going to be talking about today with old blood raven Brendan Rivers, the Three-Eyed Crow, or the Rizzle, as he's sometimes known, is how the most powerful man in Westeros, a legitimate sorcerer, and his thousand eyes in one ended up being sent to the wall and then somehow becoming essentially a living tree, becoming one with the Weirwoods. And also, what does this enigmatic figure actually want after all these years? What grand designs does he possibly have? And what is the point of getting a protege in Brandon Stark? Oh, you guys did a recording with Aziz. Aziz is great like that. He'll record anybody on any topic. You give him a time and a place and he will show up and just dazzle you. Love Aziz. Definitely not one with the weirwoods. I am not burying my old sigil, which is literally a weird. So before we get going on that, obviously we're going to do a little promo stuff. Dying of the Light Chapter 5 was released only two days ago. If you guys uh, haven't checked it out, it's available to patrons at the $5 and up level, along with the whole rest of the series. That one was again with Maester Mary. There's a lot of strange things in that chapter. We had a lot of fun, a little bit over two hours. And it's the point at which Dying of the Light is finally going to like kick off into the story the vast majority of the world building is done and we're just we're going we're going hard <laughs> it's actually about to start mary was an excellent excellent guest she did a great job really enjoyed doing that so if you're interested check it out at patreon.com slash magician and if you want to see what it's like i made chapter two again with actually with aziz <laughs> is available as a free preview all you have to do is go click at the link in the description and you can check it out See if you're interested, see if you like where the series is going, and if you want to support me on Patreon. So there you go. As per usual, we're going to go, I got my hats ready, under 50 likes for the Gurm hat with the spectacular green turtle on the front. And, oh yeah, I, and 200, we'll go full wizard, we'll go full Weirwood Sorcerer mode, just like uh, Brendan Rivers. Actually... I do think that Brendan Rivers should have a cool hat. That is one thing George did not 
follow through on. Give Blood Raven a cool wizard hat if you want to, buddy. Oh yeah, there's something about YouTube filters that doesn't like emojis. If you just post emojis, it tends to put a hold on them. I don't really know why. I don't have any control over that. That's part of its anti-spam filter. So sorry about that. That's how it goes. And also I want to say thank you to uh, Ramona Zamfir. She gave 20 pounds before the stream started. No message with that one, but thank you again, Ramona. Always appreciated. And more Lee coming in, <laughs> coming in hard with a $50 super chat. She sent in a bunch of questions also via email, which you can do at askjoemagician at gmail.com. Her message says, in honor of Sir Brendan Rivers, Lord Bloodraven, looking forward to the stream and discussion about this enigmatic figure. Thank you so much, Maura. We'll definitely get to your uh, questions you posted later. Um, glad to see you in the chat as well. That's all the promo stuff I got going at the moment. So let's get going. Let's, let's talk. Let's wrap about Brendan Rivers. And I, there's a good quote here. This actually comes from Duncan Egg. How many eyes does Lord Bloodraven have? The riddle ran. A thousand eyes and one. Some claim the king's hand was a student of the dark arts who could change his face. Put on the likeness of a one-eyed dog, even turning into a mist. Packs of gaunt gray wolves hunted down his foes, men said, and carrion crows spied for him and whispered secrets in his ear. Most of the tales were only tales, Dunk did not doubt, but no one could doubt that Bloodraven had informers everywhere. Fun fact, most of that's probably true. Like, you probably can skin change ravens and crows and use them to spy on people. The idea that maybe he controls dogs or wolves, that's definitely a thing. Skin changers often find that dogs and wolves are the easiest to control due to their familiarity, I guess, of a pack mentality. That's the thing that's commented on, that dogs are very, very often the choice for skin changers. They're easy to use, basically. So I would guess that almost everything that Dunk said, which was then dismissed as like, oh, that's just probably rumors. Probably true. He probably can send packs of wolves after people. He probably can use frozen ravens to spy on people, even back in the early time frame. And I think that's important for setting the stage of Blood Raven, that what we see from him as the three-eyed raven he probably knew how to do most of it before he became a tree his ability to keep control his ability to learn secrets as we saw him as maynard plum pretend using glamours and that kind of things like yeah was a legitimate sorcerer he used magic to keep control over westeros and people were not far off when they said that he used uh dark magics yeah he did. A justice for hats. That's right. There aren't enough cool hats in Westeros. Although if you want to see a cool hat, check out George in the initial pilot of Game of Thrones. They had him as not a Lirio Mopatis, but one of his friends. And he wears the silliest of silly hats. His hat, his hat thing just continues on. But yeah, although there are some cool hats, like for instance, uh, Sandor Clegane's uh dog hound helmet that's a really cool one also gregor Kilgain's fist helmet awesome good stuff yes definitely more cool hats one eyed dog is varamir's yeah oh that's interesting if the wolf one eye maybe it did belong to blood raven at some point one-eyed animals oh super chat here from jaded redhead only wanted to wish Ness and Beast a very happy birthday. Yes. I'm not sure if Nessie's in the chat, but yeah, her birthday was yesterday. And check this out. We said happy birthday in the chat. Uh, yesterday, Nessie, the questing beast of the, who also is very often on the, what's the name of it? The, 
Her channel's the same name, right? It's a, it's Nessie the Questing Beast. I'm gonna feel very stupid right now. She also appears very often on Here Be Dragons with Steven Stark. Yeah. Happy, happy birthday, Nessie. She said she was going out to get some seafood. Normally after she goes out, she posts like the most delicious sushi you've ever seen in the Slack. I'm hoping for Open for that to show up. Hey, welcome, Dale Smith. Glad you got to find one. It's unspun yarn. God, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. It's like when I try to think of, I want to tell people to go check out Crow Food Starter on YouTube, but it's actually Disputed Lands. That's the actual name of our YouTube channel. All these names. Actually, in a fun aspect of Dying of the Light, the importance of names and using the correct ones is a major theme of that story. But yes, the unspun yarn with Nessie. Ah, and people say I have a good memory. Not about everything. Victorian's helmet. Yeah, his squid helmet is pretty awesome, too. If anything, George puts a lot of effort into the helmets, but more needs more hats, cool hats. So where we last left off with Bloodraven, with uh, me and Aziz, was largely during the end of the, the Blackfire rebellions and his relationship to Bittersteel. When we left him, he was largely ruling Westeros, essentially as the Shadow King for his nephew, King Aerys I. And after his death, he then, even though Makar did not really like Bloodraven, ended up becoming Blood, uh, Hand of the King for King Makar I as well. Although we do know that King Makar ended up dying storming Starpike, because as per usual, the Peaks were the worst and tried to put up a rebellion. The Peaks always suck. Anytime the Peaks in the story, be ready for them to do something terrible. They always do. A regular fray of the, of the uh, Reach. Of course, how did King Makar die? Crushed by a giant rock. Way to go, Makar. <laughs> it's always funny the way George decides how to kill these kings. That's one of those that you can't just say, oh, that one was Bloodraven, unless he's warging rocks at this point. Oh, yeah, good point by Robert Smiley in the chat. I forgot to say this. I'll make sure you guys like, subscribe, um, hit the bell button for notifications, do all the things. Um, there's links in the description if you want to find, like, my Twitter or Instagram or other places like that. Yeah. Slam the MF and like button. <laughs> so after Makar's death, there's sort of a power vacuum here. And we have a great council to decide who should be king next. But there didn't really have to be one. Now, the calling of the great council here is probably Bloodraven's doing. That if you follow the strict rules of succession, there's not really a problem with who should become king next. Especially those established by the great council. The next in line after Makar's death with Arian Brightflame dead is his son, Magor. Unfortunately, Magor is a one-year-old infant at this point. And then after him should come uh, Vaela Targaryen, daughter of Daron the Drunkard. Again, this is apparently a problem for Lords of Restoros and probably Bloodraven. So politics is essentially why we end up going for a, a great council here. The explanations being that not only is Magor one years old, but people didn't like Arian and they were afraid that the son would be like the father, essentially a cruel psychopath. They did not want another Magor the Cruel to rise again. Bad move by Arian, basically naming his son that. And if he had chose a good Jaehaerys, then things would have been okay. But the other main problem with Magor is that being one years old, there would be a long regency. And you can imagine the lords of Westeros were not super psyched about who likely would have been the regent. It probably would have been Bloodraven. 
He's already acting as king more or less under Ares, under Makar. He gets reined in a little bit because Makar is not quite a pushover and he's more interested in the ruling of the realm. But it probably would have been Bloodraven as regent for probably 15, 16 years. People that don't like him probably don't want that. Also, controlling a child king is not always the best. Vayela, there's not really good reason for why she's being passed over. Mostly, it seems to be just that she was a girl. More misogyny rears its ugly head. Uh, also, the there she's called simple-minded. That's never really discussed what that means exactly. Maybe she just didn't have a mind for ruling. Like that doesn't make you simple-minded, but it's not a lot of description given there. So they call a great council, not really because there's any legal problem with putting Magor on the throne. The, the problem is the politics of it. Next in line after those two would obviously be Aemon, who has his maester's chain. And then you have Egg, a.k.a. Aegon, who comes after Aemon. Of course, they discount his older sister, Diella, because of course they did a woman. But again, with other great councils, and if you guys want to get into this more, the reason behind them and how they choose things, they're not really set precedents in the way that we would think about them. But Learned Hands did a great episode on the Great Council of 101, talking about how these quote unquote precedents became and how it was more a four or five different tests for whether someone should inherit the throne and rather than strict rules. But it largely came down to politics, the idea that the lords were unhappy about who the next king would be or the next ruler would be. So they found a reason to disqualify them. That's basically it. <laughs> They're just like, eh, we're not so happy about how the normal succession is going to go. So we're going to try to um, do an end run about it. Again, you can imagine Blood Raven had a hand in this. It's inferred that he did not think much of Arian Brightflame, but it probably maybe there was a suggestion that instead of Blood Raven, someone else would become regent. That's why he did it. You have to keep in mind that all of this is happening with Blood Raven at probably his most powerful in the realm. So it's unlikely a great council happens without his consent and why he would have discounted certain people who he wanted to get on the throne. But there's also a, a faction against Bloodraven, a growing one, which we saw in the Sworn Sword, especially among Blackfire loyalists, that they were kind of tired of his shit. <laughs> they were tired of his iron hand he kept over the realm. Everything was being blamed on him, including the Great Spring Sickness, which wiped out most of the candidates. So there's good reason on basically both sides of the Blackfire uh, loyalists and the Targaryen loyalists to call a Grand Council which is why it ended up happening instead of just putting Magor on the throne like they should have. That's one of my favorite things about going back over this. It's like, yeah, there's like Arian being a bastard, just being like a total asshole. I don't see that why that discounts Magor from becoming king. And then the politics, basically. That's one of those things where I always disagree with a Stannis loyalist where they're like, oh, well, this is how succession should work. It's like, should and how is not the same thing. It's the same thing here. So Bloodraven also takes advantage of this great council and he invites the current most likely to invade Blackfire, Aenys Blackfire, or Aenys Blackfire if you like to call him that, uh, with promises of safe passage that he could make his case as the legal heir coming from Daemon Blackfire. You can imagine how this goes the second he lands in Westeros. Aenys is arrested by Bloodraven and beheaded. And then Bloodraven actually goes further than this. 
He takes Aes's head with him to the Great Council and essentially plops it on the table and says, we won't be considering Blackfire rebels here, basically. It's a pretty aggressive move by old Bloodraven there. And that ends up being kind of a huge problem for him because this is outright oath-breaking. This is outright murder and uh, blatant political assassination. Normally, when Bloodraven wants somebody out of the way, he tends to do it a little um, more stealthy. He tends to do it from the shadows. Or his other strategy is that he tends to essentially become aware of plots and then let them develop in order that he can then pop up and say, aha, I caught you, and do what he wants with them after they have committed their crimes. This is essentially what happens in the Mystery Night when Bloodraven disguises Maynard Plum is well aware that Damon the second Blackfire is about to try and start a rebellion from White Walls, and he's there letting it happen so he can smoke out all the conspirators. Also, Kinslayer, good call. I mean, it's second cousin at that point, but yeah, he is a Kinslayer for killing Aenys. So this time with the murder of Aenys Blackfire, Bloodraven essentially drops all that other stuff, and he basically just goes forward with yeah, I'm just going to kill this guy. I'm the most powerful guy in Westeros. I'm going to make a point about Blackfires. This is my moment to shine. I'm doing it. And that ends up being sort of a problem. <laughs> it's He's being especially brazen. It's very Lair Strong-like in terms of just trying to push things a little bit too far when he's at the height of his powers. And it serves as a warning to the rest of the Lords about who they should pick, that Bloodraven, <laughs> you will be selecting from the options that he is giving you. But I think this also is a declaration of power that Bloodraven's not going anywhere. And whoever is going to become king, Bloodraven's going to be the regent or he's going to be the one swaying the votes for him. It's going to be his choice. Can imagine how poorly that went over with the rest of the lords. Probably not well. So taking this all together, you have the four candidates put forward minus Aenys. Well, I guess was put forward. I guess you could vote for his head if you wanted to. And Bloodraven essentially declaring that this process is under his control and that it's going to be who he wants put on the throne. And he's going to kill people if they don't vote the way he wants them to. So you can assume that the passing over of Vela and Magor was at his bidding. Dornish James says, if killing a second cousin makes you a kinslayer, then Robert is for killing Rhaegar. Indeed he is. Robert Brathian, kinslayer. Again, this is this is pushing his hand a little bit too far. It's a little bit too obvious on his seizure of power that he's declaring that he's going to be the shadow ruler of whoever comes next. Leah Rubenfeld? Might Bloodraven have read a prophecy about a fake appearance that was promised? I am we're gonna get to that in a little bit, but you can be sure Bloodraven's aware of prophecies. So there's a lot of suggestions at this point within the fandom, a lot of theories that are essentially boiled down to the idea that the Great Council was engineered specifically all this time to put Aegon V, well, Aeg later becoming Aegon V, on the throne to become King of Westeros. And explanations for this largely come from the Mystery Knight and their interactions, but also the idea that Egg married a Blackwood. So there's suspected there's a kind of house loyalty there. However, there is a problem with this. The preferred candidate, the one that got offered the crown first, was Maester Aemon, 
not Aegon. They went to Aemon secretly, they went to him privately, and they offered him the crown. You have to assume that Bloodraven was in on this, because again, all of this was essentially going to under his political control, essentially. To offer it, they would have had the majority of votes, which means Bloodraven had to be on board with the idea of Aemon as king. They essentially promise to remove his maester's oaths to do it, which means that this also has the support of the High Towers and the, the Faith of the Seven and the maesterhood and all that stuff, essentially to forgive him in the eyes of the gods. So everyone's behind Aemon as king. And Aemon instead throws a wrench in the works and says, nope, won't do it. I'm not giving up my maester's vows. I don't want to become king. You should give it to Egg instead. And I think that kind of really cuts against the idea that this was all a big conspiracy, essentially to put Egg on the throne, because if it was, then Aemon never should have been offered the throne. They could have just essentially passed him over and said, now he's a maester, he's out of line of succession. After we've gone over Magor and Ayala, it goes straight to Egg. There's no reason to offer him to him after that, basically. So I think that part of it is a little, is a little incorrect, essentially. I think there is some evidence, though, that if it ended up being Aegon instead of Aemon, if he had a, if he had an inkling that Aemon might turn it down, that he was okay with Egg being his backup pick. And he's like, well, either one of them is better than Magor and Vayela, so that's probably fine by me. And we know that he is impressed a little bit by Egg at the end of the Mystery Night, and we have these quotes here to talk about it. This is right at the end of it. It says, Dunk is talking with Bloodraven and Egg, and Dunk says, I've tried my lord, he's a prince, though. What he is, said Bloodraven, is a dragon. Rise, sir. And then Dunk rose. And then there's this other quote where it seems like Bloodraven is particularly testing Egg's character. And he says this, I have a mind to take you back to King's Landing with us, Lord Rivers said to Egg, and keep you at court as my guest. My father would not take kindly to that. I suppose not. Prince Makar has a prickly nature. Perhaps I should send you back to Summerhall. My place is with Sir Duncan. I'm his squire. Seven save you both, as you wish, you're free to go. You can see here, Bloodraven is essentially testing if this teenage egg, if this is a flash in the pan, if his, this, the character that he showed during the Blackfire uprising here was a one-time thing, or if he can stand up to his cousin, the most powerful man in Westeros, Bloodraven. And essentially, he, he lets him go instantly. He's like, okay, that was it. If you can tell me to go shove it, then you can go. That was essentially the whole test for him. Yeah. He, yeah, he just wants to see what the prince is made of. And he shows that he's not afraid of Bloodraven. He's not afraid of doing what he thinks is right and taking his own path, which, while admirable, maybe would have made for a king that Bloodraven had trouble controlling. Bloodraven seemed to really enjoy having Ares the first as king because Ares was basically lost in his books all the time. And Bloodraven could basically do whatever he wanted. The only times that they actually clashed was when it came time to do what to do with Bittersteel and uh, what to do with Damon II. Bloodraven wanted to kill both of them, but Ares wouldn't let him. So having somebody that could stand up to him, maybe a little bit like Makar did, is not maybe what he wanted, which may inform why Aemon was offered the crown before Egg. Aemon very likely... Well, we know that he has a personality much more similar to Ares the First, therefore somebody that 
uh, would probably leave the running of most of the realm to Bloodraven, which is probably something he wanted. Oh, uh, super chat here from Greer Gladney. $10. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Did Brendan overplay his hand or did he intentionally commit an act that he knew would get him booted from the small council and allow him to be free to become the Three-Eyed Raven? We're going to get to that one in a little bit. A very good question. And this sort of gets to the heart of the discussion about Bloodraven is how much is him planning everything and how much is him reacting but an excellent question i'm definitely i'm gonna get to that in just a little bit yeah don't understand makar does not come across as plural blood raven he actually doesn't like blood raven at all he's also annoyed that blood raven was made uh hand of the king over him and yet he keeps him on his hand so there's a there's a sense that no matter who became king blood raven would essentially be ruling the realm for them aemon would have been probably more malleable as a king than Aegon, but it's clear from these interactions that he doesn't have a negative perception of Aegon, that he probably has a pretty positive one. And it's like between the two brothers, either one's fine. Preferred Aemon, though. So one thing to get to here, and this is something I alluded to a little bit earlier, is the suggestion that Bloodraven essentially has systematically destroy the Targaryen line of succession in the family tree specifically to get Aemon or Aegon on the throne. Most of the proponents of these theories believe it was specifically Aegon they are trying to put there. Again, the idea that Egg married a Blackwood and how things seem to break his way all the time, that he's quote-unquote very unlikely, well maybe he wasn't unlikely, maybe it was on purpose, ends up being a lot of the explanation for this and the sort of Bloodraven's general puppet master vibes. And I'm not going to say he did not kill any Targaryens, that he didn't have a hand in any of them dying. Some of them, perhaps. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a hand in, for instance, Arian White Flame's wildfire drunk, uh, drink thing. That Arian's such an unstable psychopath that I can imagine that Bloodraven would personally found it unpalatable to have him as king which he was next in line for during Makar's reign. And definitely he had a hand in passing over Vale and Maegor. He did not want either of them on the throne, so they did not become it. And the suggestion is that a lot of Targaryens die in very suspicious ways in the run-up to Aegon the Unlikely. Although, if you actually go and look at them one by one, quite most of them are not suspicious. Many of them died in the Great Spring Sickness, which, I mean, unless we're talking about Bloodraven intentionally getting them sick, during essentially the Westerosi pandemic. I don't know. I have I have hard to see that one. That's a fairly on-the-nose explanation. How did they die? They got this great, great spring sickness and died. That's not a that's not really a conspiracy there. Other ones, Baylor Breakspear, well, Blood Raven clearly didn't have anything to do with that. We saw that in the Hedge Knight. He got brained by his brother Makar during Dunk's trial by seven. And actually, at that point, Bloodraven didn't exist. This is sort of a construction of the story element, but basically that Bloodraven didn't become a character until the Sworn Sword, basically. Before that, there was a general idea that the Three-Eyed Crow was a Targaryen, and he didn't get a name and a character until largely, I think, the, the Sworn Sword and I think a Storm of Swords is when they first show up. Oh, you guys are talking about if he's the Three-Eyed Crow or not? Uh, we can get to that later. I have strong opinions about that one. Other deaths that uh, got in the way, the most suspicious ones are Aelor Targaryen and his father, 
Rhaegal's Hargarian. The story goes that Rhaegal choked on a lamprey pie and that Aelord died in an accident, a tragic accident on Dragonstone. No details about that. And then we know that there were stories about the idea that Rhaegal was mad that he would dance naked in the Red Keep all the time. But we really don't know anything about Aelor. And the only thing, the most details we get about Aelor as a character is actually from his wife, his sister Aelora, that the rat, the hawk, and the pig are three characters that essentially assaulted her at a masked ball. I'm guessing this actually means a sexual assault leading to her eventual suicide. And then the three masked characters, the rat, the hawk, and the pig, eventually use those masks and those identities to start a rebellion, which doesn't really go anywhere. Although it is a fun mystery if you want to try and figure out who those three characters are. So of the Targaryens we know that died, three definitely most suspicious are Arian, Aelor, and Rhaegal. If you wanted to say you had a hand in those for personality reasons, I don't have a problem with that. The, the idea, though, that he would kill Aelor in order to put Makar on the throne is a little suspicious because they don't like each other. And he definitely doesn't like Arian Brightflame. You put Makar on the throne, you're putting Arian second in line for the throne. So that seems like a very unblood raven thing to do. Why would he put a cousin that he doesn't really like and then his son, who he really doesn't like, next in line to the Iron Throne? So if you're assuming he's doing that, you're then also assuming that he's later committing himself to then killing Arian and anyone else. And I guess making sure that Daron's kids don't get on the throne so that Egg can eventually inherit. That's such a, a long-winded, long-term strategy plan that it seems unlikely to be the plan. That he sort of, that if he has a hand in the Targaryen succession, that it's more along the lines of he's looking at like who's next up and then making decisions about them rather than a long-term plan to get to Aegon, especially when you look at the time frame. At the time that Rhaegal and Aelor die, Egg is still only a young teenager at that point, so why would Bloodraven know at that point that, aha, this kid is the one I want? It's, it's a kind of stretching imagination to think that he could do that. <laughs> Actually, good question, or good point. Tony Sled, who benefits? That's the question. I don't think Bloodraven benefits from putting Makar and Arian next in line. He doesn't like them. He doesn't really get along with them. He ends up forming an alliance with Makar after some time, but we don't really know how that was done. Did he force Makar into it? It's for sure Aegon was unlikely, but unlikely in the sense that it was a grand master plan of Bloodraven, like pruning the family tree to get to him seems it seems stretching imagination. Guilty Undertaker makes a good point. What should we? Th why should we think ill of Rhaegal for dancing naked in the privacy of his own home? I don't think we should. I think that is, if you wanted to make the case that Bloodraven killed him, circulating the idea that he was a little crazy, and therefore that informing that that's why he uh, choked on pie could be a cover story. Basically, that's that's my perception of that story. Like, why would you include that? Why would that come out? Well. It could inform, number one, why Bloodraven didn't like him as king, and then number two, how he essentially sold to the realm that a king choked on pie and died. The other time we see a king choke on pie and died is Joffrey Baratheon, and it's because he was poisoned. So I wouldn't put that past George that you're supposed to make the connection there that the pie may have had the strangler in it or something. People in the chat are bringing up the idea that this was some sort of prophecy-based thing. That is certainly possible. That Bloodraven saw a vision in the future 
house of egg coming to power or the prince that was promised or something like that end up deciding that maybe it's one of Makar's kids that ends up fulfilling it but it's the nature of prophecy everyone gets it wrong nobody knows the truth of it so it'd be hard to say that's what's going on so i brought this up in uh, a previous stream i was talking about the idea of when if you looked at the Tyrion manipulating young griff to invade westeros if you literally did not see it on the page, it's an it's an event that's very easy to essentially assign conspiracy to it. Like, who does Tyrion know? Who does he back up? Who does it benefit for Tyrion to convince Young Griff to invade early before before everyone is ready? Before Daenerys is there, and as a fandom, you can imagine people's going wild with that interaction. But we did see it, and the reason that Tyrion did convince Young Griff who suicidally invade Westeros early was not part of a master plan. Nobody made him do it. Tyrion did it because he was in a bad place mentally and he wanted to see his family and Westeros and his father's legacy essentially burn under war. That's why he did it. And the same thing should be applied here when we're looking at these characters that Bloodraven may have supposedly killed. Certainly you can draw a conspiracy between them, but that doesn't mean all of them were. Sometimes pawns have minds of their own. Sometimes Characters are not involved in deaths, and sometimes people do fall off their horses. So that's sort of a, a meta thing that's enjoyable. Bloodraven is a character that how you react to him is an interesting sort of mirror back on your own your own thought processes. We'll get to that part later. But I think another uh, point to throw cold water on the Bloodravens behind everything thing is Look at how poorly the schemes of other similar characters have gone throughout Westeros, throughout the history of the books. You know, Varys and Illyrio, George literally makes a, a joke about them in A Dance with Dragons where the Golden Company say, oh, the, the fat man's plan is always changing with the moon and how they keep trying to have these grand plans of invasions and they always fall down when it comes time for real people to act out the plan. It's, it's not Sivas. It's not chess. The, the pieces can move on their own. Well, Varys is as good as it gets and not all of his plans work out. Littlefinger basically only succeeds in his role by essentially being chaotic. <laughs> it's not that he has a grand plan. It's that at every moment he's the sort of taking small advantages of things that work for him. And they probably are going to catch up with him in the end. For instance, that Bloodrave, I mean, uh, that Littlefinger is probably going to get caught and executed for his role in the War of the Five Kings. Did I color my hair? Nope. Did not color my hair. I did. I forgot to change the filter settings on the last stream, so that's maybe may why it looks different. Uh, what are the other good ones? Oh, Larry Strong. We're going to be talking about him next weekend because his similarities to Bloodraven as a character. But, you know, he goes through all the Dance of the Dragons. He's manipulating the dragons. He's pitting people against each other. And where does it get Laris? His head cut off by Cregan Stark for the murder of Aegon II. About Tywin, he spent his entire adult life trying to manipulate Westeros, and it all falls down when Tyrion hits him with a crossbow, and not all of his plans work out. The same for Duran Martell and the imagery of his overripe blood oranges as he keeps trying to play a strategic game that doesn't work out for him. Aryan Martell and her Queensmaker plot. It's a running theme that these characters within A Song of Ice and Fire they have limited success and then they get their come up and says spy masters and that very often their plots fail because even though they are extremely smart and great strategic minds, they can't always get people to want do what they want. And you should probably assume the same thing for Blood Raven. 
that if you're assuming that everything's working out his way, that's not the trend in the story. I'm sorry if I'm being a if, if I'm being a bit of a buzz Killington. I know these are popular theories. This is my perspective on. Them. No, I'm talking about Duran Martel in A Feast for Crows, where he's watching the blood oranges splat upon the ground, and it's the idea that Duran has been trying has been playing the game without acting for too long. Yeah, there's a whole analysis of the blood oranges, but makes a lot of sense. But you know, it's it's part of a larger theme that these characters like Blood Raven cannot control everything and that ends up being part of their downfall so maybe blood raven is a character who is the exception that maybe uh, proves the rule i guess and that but i think we as fans should expect that his plans even with his magical abilities would probably go awry more often than the fandom assumes and that if he had long-term plans of putting specific people on the throne for specific prophecy reasons well, they should be probably constantly revised and undermined by the actions of the people around him. So in direct response to that, as it turns out, Bloodraven could not control the newly coronated King Aegon V, who immediately had Bloodraven arrested, and he sentenced him to be executed for the murder of Aenys Blackfire. You have to assume that this may have been a shock for Bloodraven if he was if he even was trying specifically to manipulate Egg in particular onto the throne, because you have to assume the two of them probably talked beforehand, maybe had some private meetings about would he be hand of the king? How are they going to deal with certain threats going on? How was it going to work between them with Bloodraven being the most powerful man in Westeros? You have to assume that him being chosen to be king was largely Bloodraven's doing. So it's kind of interesting that after Bloodraven double-crossed Aenys, did Aegon instantly double-cross Bloodraven right back? I think that's an it's an interesting question about what exactly happened with these with this interaction here. How much of it was on purpose and how much was a surprise? I'm betting it was a pretty big surprise when Bloodraven found himself arrested. Aegon does relent though, and he allows Bloodraven to take the black and join the Night's Watch. And in order to he actually make sure to make it, he actually goes and makes it to the Night's Watch and that his allies within the court don't try and rescue him, he is sent north with Maester Aemon, who voluntarily chose to go and actually may have been the one to persuade Aegon not to kill Bloodraven, Duncan the Tall, the Raven's Teeth, and basically everyone in the dungeons on the ship, the Golden Dragon, to the wall. Uh, we have the only mention of this here when... Um, from Eamon when he says, when I, when I last passed this way, I saw every rock and tree in Whitecap and watched the gray gulls flying in our wake. I was, three, I was five and thirty and had been a maester of the chain for sixteen years. Egg wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon and insisted his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings in golden fetters. Emptied egg, egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I not, would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brynden Rivers. Later he was chosen Lord Commander. Bloodraven, said Darian. I know a song about him. A thousand eyes in one, it's called. I thought he lived a hundred years ago. We all did, once I was as young as you. That seemed to make him sad. So, and interesting point here. This is... The only time in the entirety of the books that Aemon, Maester Aemon, says anything about Bloodraven. This is the one mention. 
And he basically dodges the question about Blood Raven's character by saying, yes, I was once young too, instead of commenting on the thousand eyes in one and the reputation of Blood Raven. What was he like as Lord Commander? Were they friends? Did he know each other? Eamon basically just dodges the issue completely. Interesting, interesting character moment there. Although part of that is that Blood Raven, as I said, did not exist early on in the books as we know him later. So when Eamon's talking about Lord Commanders and stuff like that, he can't mention Blood Raven because George hadn't made him up yet. So it's a little bit of a filling backwards where George has to essentially keep up the act that Eamon doesn't talk about Blood Raven. So it makes sense in the past books too. Kind of a, a bit of a retcon there. A Guilty Undertaker brings up a good point about blood magic and green seers being part of his plans for the children of the forest. Yeah, I think this is an important part of this whole scenario about Blood Raven going north to the Night's Watch. And it's one part that's underdeveloped a Blood Raven story in this time is that he would have been over time increasing his use and mastery of magic, and in particular his connections to the Green Seers. Based on his future and what we know he becomes, and his likely use of magic when he was Hand of the King, the idea that he's connected to the children of the forest trees, the warging, all that stuff um, should have been an important part of his role, but we hear almost nothing about it because most people don't believe it was true. So you have to, the obvious act, the obvious question to ask is like Bran, was Bloodraven being sent visions by the previous Three-Eyed Crow or whoever was in control of the Weirwoods by the Children of the Forest most of his life? Did he end up going to the Night's Watch by choice? Was he following visions or was it a happy accident? Actually, a uh, super chat here from uh, no, 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 two Canadian dollars. Thank you so much. No, no. Was he sent with all those people to elect him Lord Commander? No, it probably helped, though. You have to imagine that most of the Night's Watch when Blood Raven arrived were Blackfire loyalists. That's the same thing happens to John when he shows up at the Night's Watch and most of the people that are there are either small folk who committed crimes crimes or the lordly ones were largely targaryen loyalists who were sent there at the end of robert's rebellion so blood raven probably didn't have that great of an entrance there good question though it's important to keep in mind the larger politics of all of this into one cohesive story about him guilty undertaker asked the question on uh the patron slack he said did blood raven have a three-eyed crow of his own so we know that brain is called to the north through these visions from the three-eyed crow and you can probably assume that Blood Raven throughout his life was getting a similar dose of green dreams and green visions, maybe dragon dreams. Like, for instance, you can ask the question, did Blood Raven ever see the heart of winter himself? Did he see all the dreamers that were impaled upon the ice looking into the terrifying cold? And if he was, was there somebody there who taught him? And the idea that did he gradually become more aware of the others being real and not only real, but a threat to the realm in general? I think you can probably assume that there was somebody there before Bloodraven. I don't know if they were human. It may have been a child of the forest that taught Bloodraven to do what he does. I wonder, I do seriously wonder if, if there's been an unbroken line, more or less, of human green seers in that cave with the children. That seems, I don't know, that seems a bit unlikely, but maybe it was part of the pact. But there always has to be a human there, and they always find a good, they always find a green seer throughout the centuries to play that role. But somebody had to teach him, somebody had to hook him up to the weirwoods themselves. So 
if there's not a quote unquote three eyed crow, another human there waiting for him, then there definitely would have been the children. I think you can parallel his journey to brands that how did how did blood raven know how to get brand enticed and come north well he may have been copying what was used on him that kind of thing and this kind of raises the the question that was asked earlier did he intentionally go north to join the night's watch to eventually become the three-eyed crow or the last green seer whatever whichever title you want to use for him from greer gladney or was it a mistake now, if you want to think about it in terms of was it intentional, the idea that he would want to go north to seek his destiny is definitely a plot you can think about. Did he Was he throughout his life always being drawn north and ignoring it? Instead, being hand of the king, he could do more good in Westeros proper than going north and finding the children or something like that. I think that's probably part of his plot. But the other thing is that we know that Eamon in particular gave gave up the crown and went north partially because he wanted to make sure that nobody would challenge Egg anymore. And the idea that Egg then arrested and exiled Bloodraven did two things politically that worked really well for Egg. One, it made the Blackfire loyalists and the people still upset about the rebellions maybe feel a little bit kinder towards Egg, that maybe he could be seen as a unifier that he got rid of the controversial Brendan Rivers, who literally put a head of a black fire at the Great Council. So did Blood Raven do that on purpose in order to give Egg credibility? I think that's definitely a possibility to think about, because you have to assume that he would have been aware that uh, Egg was about to arrest him and try and execute him. It's hard to believe Blood Raven would not be aware that was about to happen. So I think that adds to the idea that his arrest and exiling may have been on purpose. It could have been. I don't know. I go back and forth on this one because the idea then goes that he went to the Night's Watch in particular to become Lord Commander and eventually disappear. But that didn't, ha that didn't happen for another 20 years. And uh, somebody in the chat made the point earlier that you don't have to be exiled to the Night's Watch in order to become to join it. You can just go like John does. You just sign up. Bloodraven could have quit his hand to the king and gone north basically at any time. So I think the idea that he needed Egg to do this for him to end up there, I think that's flawed reasoning. He doesn't have to have, he doesn't have to be exiled by the king to do it. He can just quit. So, wait, what's going on in the chat? You guys are talking about Cersei and Stannis? Yeah. Let's <laughs> focus back in on, on Bloodraven. I don't, I don't know what this argument's about. So, yeah, those two kind of work against each other. He doesn't need to go to the Knights. He doesn't need to be exiled to join the Knights Watch, but he could have allowed Egg to arrest him in order to give him political credibility. Maybe he didn't expect to be exiled and was just like, oh shit, well now I'm stuck. That would be more aligned with the way that the, the downfall of plotters in A Song of Ice and Fire tend to go. They get what they want, but then it has a little bit of a downside tinge to it. So then we get. The idea that Bloodraven arrives at the wall with the raven's teeth. Most, as I said earlier, most of the Night's Watch would probably be people upset with Bloodraven that he personally sent them there or had a hand in their exile or they're on the other side of some war. Though we do know from the mystery night that Bloodraven preferred to keep his prisoners personally or he cut off their heads. Not a lot of people made it to the Night's Watch from his reign. Even still, you can assume it would have been a bit like from Watchmen 
when when Rorschach ends up in the prison and everyone in there is like, <laughs> good to see you, Rorschach. You can imagine the same thing happened to, uh, to Blood Raven. Luckily, he had his raven's teeth. That may have been a purpose cho- purposeful choice from Egg to make sure that Blood Raven was not immediately murdered upon making it to the Nice Watch. So actually a question here from Maura Lee about this time. She asked, does Blood Raven still have Dark Sister? If so, will he give it to Mira Reed to take it back with her when she and Bran finally leave the cave? So the question of Dark Sister, if you don't know, this is the other Targaryen Valyrian steel sword along with Blackfire. It was given to Blood Raven by Aegon the Unworthy, I believe, in recognition of him being awesome at whatever he was doing. So Ashea of History of Westeros actually went to a book signing and asked George, was uh, Blood Raven allowed to take Dark Sister to the wall? And George has said yes, that he went to the wa- he went to the Night's Watch with Dark Sister. If you follow that logically, since it has not reappeared anywhere else in history, as far as the rest of the realm is concerned, Blood Dark Sister is lost. You can assume that when Blood Raven later disappears from the Night's Watch, he did take Dark Sister with him. There has been suggestions that Three Finger Hob is Three Fingered Hob because he's been using Dark Sister to cut up meat and stuff like that for dinners. But I think it's I think you're the inference you're supposed to make is that somewhere in the cave of Blood Raven, a Dark Sister is just leaning against the wall. And at the suggestion for Mora Lee, will Mira Reed be able to take it? I think that's definitely likely. Maybe Hodor will pick it up or Mira will. This is kind of foreshadowed with what they did in the Crypts of Winterfell when as they were escaping, they all grabbed swords and Blood Raven. I mean, and uh, Hodor Joe is a very old, strange one. So. Odor or Mira are definitely high on the list of characters that may end up grabbing Dark Sister as they try to escape later. So, yes, I would I would say definitely that's where Dark Sister is. I don't think it's at the Night's Watch. I don't think it's I don't think it's sitting in a snow pile out beyond the wall somewhere. It's probably with Blood Raven somewhere in the caves and they just haven't seen it yet. So let's talk about that disappearance I just I was just speaking about. So Blood Raven arrives at the wall in 233 AC and he's elected Lord Commander in 239 AC. So six years later, amazingly, Blood Raven never stops playing the Game of Thrones. He ends up acquiring power wherever he goes and influencing politics and winning elections. I guess that's kind of a thing, though. And I think you can also assume that when Blood Raven got to the wall, he had a similar reaction to it that to it and what lays beyond it as probably Bran and John. That, that he's magically sensitive. He's a war. He's a green seer. Maybe he also went to the night fort and became terrified of it like Bran or like Alisane Targaryen was so long ago. Maybe he went down and spoke to the Black Gate. Maybe he saw the cold mist that were the others, became, became aware of the children in the forest and that they were still alive out there. I think it's a useful exercise to compare the teacher to his pupils, and his pupils in this instance is John and Bran. Obviously, we know he's the three-eyed crow that influenced uh, Bran, but he's also probably the crow that keeps appearing in John's dreams and messing with him. So you can assume that he thinks both of them, he's trying to guide them in particular ways. Oh yeah, halfway through, make sure you guys slam that MF and like button. Got 182 watching today, 125 likes. Those are rookie numbers. Gonna pump those up. I'll put on silly hats if you do as a thank you for doing it. It helps people find the um, find the content and all that stuff. Valyrian steel is is very light, so I wouldn't 
on the idea that Mira could not pick up Dark Sister, especially since we don't know how big it is anyway. We've never actually seen it. So I wouldn't be surprised if Mira could pick it up and use it. Hodor, definitely. After he's elected Lord Commander, there we have no history of any kings beyond the wall rising, attacking the watch, anything like that. It appears that Bloodraven serving as essentially King of the Night's Watch had a peaceful land, much like uh, Roose Bolton, that Bloodraven had a positive effect essentially on keeping the wildlings tensions with the Night's Watch down. Oh, another super chat from uh, no, no, another five Canadian dollars. Thank you. The question is, is Bran being tricked into a trap to be used? Old Nan said all crows are liars. Mel thinks there thinks another is behind the Woodman. Could it could another be behind Blood Raven, the three eyed crow? So I don't think there is another like I, I, I know the theory is that there is the three eyed crow and then there's Blood Raven and they're separate things or something like that. I don't think that one's true. I think that's just sort of a misunderstanding that comes from early versions of the text and George trying to write backwards, where he didn't do as smooth of a job, essentially making the early chapters fit in with the later ones. Because as I said, Bloodraven did not exist as we know him in A Game of Thrones, in A Clash of Kings. He's a relatively late creation of George's, not the archetype of who, what what place he would put into, but specifically the person he was not there early on in the story so i think a lot of the the things that people point to in terms of being like well this is evidence that they're they're different characters i think that's just george doing his best to try and make things agree later on and not being super successful at it but in terms of brand being tricked into another trap to be used i think that's definitely on the table i think that what Bran thinks he's doing there and what Blood Raven thinks he's doing there are very different things. But yeah, I would be I I think we should definitely be skeptical of what Blood Raven is telling uh Bran and all the things he's saying in A Dance with Dragons that what Bran thinks he's doing and what Blood Raven thinks he's doing are probably very different things, which is sort of the the reason that I would be skeptical. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed some PayPal stuff. Hang on a second. That's a that's a plot point in stories like Ender's Game, where the the reason to essentially that adults in those kind of stories end up using gifted children in those roles, particularly when you're looking at Commander Graf and or Colonel Graf in Ender's Game to Ender himself, is the idea that they don't understand what they're being used for. So I would. I would be skeptical of that. PayPal here from Danny McKay. Thank you very much, Danny. $5 right back at you, buddy. And then there's actually another $50 from Morally on PayPal. To Joe Magician, just to show love and support for all the fabulous content, both here and on Patreon. You are very loved and appreciated. Hugs. How's my vegetable garden coming along? I'm going to be putting up more stuff on the Growing Strong YouTube channel. I've just started harvesting the potatoes. Carrots are going to be coming next. So there's going to be a lot of stuff coming up on there. I haven't really updated that channel. If you guys don't know, I have a gardening channel called Growing Strong. I haven't been putting much stuff up on there because not much has happened. I've learned, I installed an irrigation system for my little garden, so I haven't had to water it. And I've essentially just been waiting for everything to ripen. So there wasn't a lot of news. But yeah, thank you so much, Morally. If you wanted to send me PayPal's, I guess, if you don't want any super chats, let me grab the link. I mean, it's better for me because... 
PayPal takes less of a cut. YouTube takes quite a bit, but I don't really care which one. It's up to you guys. So this is the PayPal link if you want to send them there. I'm sorry, this is the right one. I'm just going to put that in there. I don't really care, you guys. I appreciate the tips and everything, but I don't care which one you send it through if you want to. Totally up to you. Oh, super chat here from the Happy Masquerader. Do you think Bloodraven has quote unquote good intentions or do you agree with people who say he's secretly evil? I think it's Bloodraven is not as simple as good or evil. I think uh, that Bloodraven is trying to do his best for the realm and how he thinks she should go about it. But his tactics and the way he's trying to do it and maybe the things he's caused are maybe clouding that. Like, for instance, Bloodraven in his life as Hand of the King spent most of his time tracking down Blackfires and trying to kill Bittersteel. But many of the problems with the Blackfires and Bittersteel were created by Bloodraven and his brutal tactics trying to essentially stamp them out. So I don't I don't know if Bloodraven's a moral person. But he definitely has the idea that he's trying to do what he thinks is best. But it's the old story that villains are heroes in their own head. Good question, though. I think the idea of is he a good or bad person, is he good or evil, is a very, I think it's a central question to his character. And not one easily, easily said. It sort of depends on your perspective and your understanding of the the struggles going on between blood raven and the night's watch and the idea of it also comes down to stannis talking to davos and stannis asks what is the life of one boy against an entire kingdom and davos says everything well that's largely the same question about blood raven if you think stannis is righteous you probably should think blood raven is too but these are not easy questions an excellent though from happy masquerader thank you for the super chat so where was I? Ah, a question here from Jimmy on the patron Slack. He asks, was there any connection between Blood Raven to the Black Gate at the Night Fort? And I would say we don't know specifically if he ever ventured down to the Night Fort and saw the Black Gate. But in his time as Lord Commander, Blood Raven did actually go out on many rangings and that he was a much more active Lord Commander. He did not stay at home giving out orders. He wanted to be out in the field. So. I would be shocked if Bloodraven did not find time to find his way to each of the Night's Watch castles. If he did not investigate the Night Fort in particular, if he didn't find the Black Gate, like any secret at the Night's Watch, you have to, I think it's fair to assume that Bloodraven investigated them in his time. There's also a suggestion, is he in control of the Black Gate? I think that's an interesting question too. When the voice booms out and asks, who, who goes there basically is that blood raven controlling the massive weirwood face i think that's a question of like magic so i don't really know how to answer it but he def i imagine he definitely knows about it and has seen it he definitely does at this point when he becomes the three-eyed three-eyed crow the last greens here but during his time as the night's watch commander i expect so and again going on to jimmy's question this should be the time and when Bloodraven's magical side and interests start exploding in terms of what he's doing with them, because he's not focused on being spy master for seven kingdoms anymore. He's not holding the realm together by with his own two hands. He has a lot more free time on the Night's Watch and his mind is less occupied and less clouded, essentially, with human drama. I mean, there's a lot of drama at the Night's Watch, but compared to King's Landing, it's nothing. Ferris Aurelius, did Aemon announce he was taking the black before or after Aegon announced Blood Raven was to be executed? 
I think officially it was afterwards, but you have to imagine that when Egg turned down the kingship, he also had the thought at that point that I'm just going to join the Night's Watch. I think it's also a good time to ask the question of did he stay in contact with Egg through the years? Blood Raven was Lord Commander for quite a long time. Eamon would have been there as well. So if they were sending secret letters back and forth between the Red Keep, between Blood Raven and Egg for advice on ruling the realm, that kind of thing. I think that's possible. I don't know about probable. It kind of depends on your understanding of how Blood Raven ended up at the Night's Watch. If it was a double cross, then I imagine that Blood Raven would probably not be super, super into talking to Egg again, even by letter. But if there was a bit of a wink, wink, nod, nod nature to it, then perhaps they did stay in contact and there were letters flying back and forth between the Ravens. You can imagine that Blood Raven, using his powers too, did keep track of Westeros in general. He doesn't stop being a warg. He doesn't stop being able to skin change ravens and see into rooms. His spy network didn't disintegrate with him. So, but I would suspect that Blood Raven did keep in some kind of contact with Egg as king and was keeping loose tabs on what was happening in the rest of the kingdoms. I agree, Isabel Malego, Lamego, that. Eamon and Egg were PayPal's. They had to be definitely him. I'm not sure about Blood Raven, but it's very much a possibility. But we know very little about this time as Blood Raven's chance to be quote unquote king in his own right as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Based on his previous behavior, you can assume that he probably spent a lot of his time essentially toying with the wildlings and northerners as the master manipulator that he is. Perhaps Blood Raven often went out disguise among the wildlings, taking on his Maynard Plum persona again. Or maybe that some maybe he chose a particular character that was more palatable among the, the tribes beyond the wall. It may be that Mance Raider's eventual becoming King Beyond the Wall was started by Blood Raven essentially introducing southern ideas of unity and nationhood basically among the, the tribes and of course you can assume that he started visiting the great weirwoods since he still took access he took active parts in ranging so again he's not sitting back at castle black he's going beyond the wall and doing things the idea that he's in disguise learning about the wildlings inner structures is exactly beat for beat what we've seen that he's doing within within the mystery night so I don't think he would have stopped doing that just because he came Lord Commander. The Raven doesn't change his feathers. Oh, it's a ha is it hat time? We got to 150? All right. Hat time. There we go. Thank you guys for slamming the like button up to 150, really. There were several kings beyond the wall before Mance, though, not while Blood Raven was Lord Commander. There's a particular gap there. You can imagine that Blood Raven also used this time in order to split them apart from each other, make sure they didn't unite. But you never know. There is definitely a similarity between Mance Raider and Blood Raven that's a little intriguing. Uh, this is also probably when Blood Raven started reaching out to find the other Green Seers among the population of Westeros, trying to lure them north. And there's actually a question about this from Guilty Undertaker in the patron Slack. Guilty Undertaker asks, Did Blood Raven actually kill slash watch die a thousand of her children before Bran? Or are the thousand other dreamers impaled upon their points more metaphorical? Euron and even more tinfoily sweet Robin appear to be failed protégés of Bloodraven and are both still alive. Are they among the thousand or in the rule of three? Most that dream of flying with Bloodraven die, a few survive, but are, shall we say, altered by the experience. And only one proves worthy. So 
when did Blood Raven start reaching out? I would expect it's while he's on the watch. You have to imagine that he starts really tuning into the children of the forest and his green seer side and his magical side, especially hanging out with Aemon all the time. That would have been a big part of knowledge that passed between them. So there is an there is an overlap of timing. So Blood Raven's elected Lord Commander in 239 AC. He goes to the Night's Watch in 233 AC, but he disappears in 252. And that's right around the time that Euron Greyjoy, and we definitely know he becomes the Three-Eyed Crow later. But I would guess that Blood Raven, the idea behind Melisandre, the wall is a, a hinge of the world and that she's more powerful there. It may have essentially increased Blood Raven's powers and his ability to reach out to others. So I wouldn't be surprised if during his time at the Night's Watch, but also before that in the rest of Westeros, that he did try to find other skin changers and green seers among the population. I would not be shocked if Blood Raven was trying very hard throughout most of his life to find protégés, since he never had children himself. Um, yeah, it's a good question from Guilty Undertaker, though. Uh, exactly when did he start doing this? Euron apparently if you believe Euron was being contacted by Blood Raven was when he was young and that would have been right around the time Blood Raven disappeared so maybe an escalating nature similar to Bran where he was essentially using his powers as tricks for for politics and then he starts getting a feeling for a larger purpose for them and I mean the idea that Blood Raven is a failed pupil of, of Blood Raven it may be informed by the fact, if you believe it, that Blood Raven was essentially a novice at it when he first tried. It may have been very soon after his becoming a part of the Weirwood. So that's something to keep in mind. And another question, another part of that question from Guilty Undertaker. It's a plot point in Duncan Egg that Blood Raven is hyper focused on the Blackfire threat while neglecting the realm's other problems. Has he learned since then, or is he making exactly the same mistake and focusing on the others to the detriment of all else? I think that you should expect. That his personality has not changed that the idea that blood raven tends to focus on external threats at the cost of everything else would have continued into his time as the last green seer once he gets control of the weirwoods and his powers start expanding so the idea that he essentially subs in the others for bitter steel makes a lot of sense for his personality and the way he deals with things another good question right there is Blood Raven a Rasputin comp? I don't know enough about Rasputin to answer that. The only thing I know about him is from the the movie Anastasia and from Destiny. So I think he's a lot like a lot like Des Rasputin from Destiny, the uh, the war mind. So yeah, definitely. Uh, Five dollar super chat from Smith Crazy. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. What do you think about Gurm using old gods, old using gods and powers in the imperfect way? It tends to turn out relates to deus ex machina kind of turned on its head i'm trying to understand the question what do you think about Gurm using gods and powers in the imperfect way it tends to turn out relates to deus ex machina kind of turn on its head oh so the idea that people it's like um an icarus thing that as characters in a song of ice and fire reach for magic it's the idea of the sword without the hilt i think that's the message behind it that he loves the idea that I think a lot of times in fantasy, characters reach for powers that they don't have in order to overcome a existential threat. 
And George is going against that, that the characters who do it do it at great expense to themselves and to their own cause. Stannis is a perfect example of somebody who has tried to embrace Melisandre and R'hllor, and it has only ended up essentially burning his hand doing it. But yeah, I think that's exactly right, that he wants, it to, he wants his characters to suffer when they reach for more power. And Bloodraven also is another good example of that. What did it get him at the end of the day, using his power for all those years to become a thousand eyes in one? Well, he didn't get Shiera. He never, he never managed to catch Bittersteel. He couldn't stop Damon Blackfire's rebellion. His powers, while impressive, never really got him what he wanted. It never really got him the happiness he sought. And that's for one of the most powerful characters in the story. So something to think about. Uh, so the actual story of disappearing in 252 while ranging at the age of 77, Bloodraven abruptly disappears. Aemon never says anything about it. But again, his unwillingness to speak about Bloodraven, even when he's talking to Jon Snow, thinking that like the example of Bloodraven may be useful to Jon, never comes up. And it may indicate that there was some tomfoolery afoot. Was their idea of abandoning vows a problem? Like, did Blood Raven think want to convince Aemon to come with him to the Weirwoods and to meet the children? Was there an argument between the two of them about who they serve and why, similar to the idea of Samwell making the argument that the realms of men include Gilly? And what about the great threat of the others? Is it just their job to kill the tribes beyond the wall, or do they have a larger duty? It makes you wonder if Blood Red, if Blood Raven read the prophecies and thought that maybe he was the prince that was promised, and that his increasing use of green dreams and green sight may have convinced them of things that were not true. I think the other that's one possibility for what happened is that he willingly went to the cave and joined the the children of the forest and eventually became nestled in his crib thing and became the Three-Eyed Raven. That it was a conscious choice. But there is definitely another possibility that uh, Blood Raven was caught out or injured or ambushed, and the children essentially saved him by plugging him into the dying, by plugging the dying green seer into the trees. And this is a question that comes up from Jimmy and Nicole R., both from the patron Slack. She said they say, Does cold hands fit in? And what the fuck is cold hands? If you want to see a connection there, I think there's a decent one to be made that. The fate of cold hands as essentially an undead servant to the children may parallel Blood Raven. Like the fact that he's basically undead, that he can't leave. He's more, more or less a prisoner of the Weirwoods at this point that he has no ability to fight back from. I can see both sides of it. Did he join willingly or was he taken there against his will like cold hands returned to life into servitude? It could go either way. The children of the forest are not big on asking permission. They sort of do their thing. Oh, another super chat from the Happy Escarator. Did Blood Raven actually send the direwolves north, north of the wall and arrange for the mama wolf to stag to kill each other? Or can we actually give the old gods credit for that one? If he was controlling the wolf, that is the question of how the mother wolf got south of the wall is a really interesting one. If you're assuming that he essentially skin changed the wolf and drove it essentially south that's hard to do it's not easy to get through the wall it would have had to swim around the edges or yeah basically it basically would have had to swim unless the night's watch let it through 
or blood raven led it there you can ima- imagine like a were uh dire wolf a giant pregnant dire wolf going under the black gate blood raven opening it and then him skin changing it and walking it up through the night fort and down i mean that is a possibility that is something a skin changer could do it's hard to say is it a moment of destiny or was it manufactured destiny i think the idea that when you go back and read that chapter you see a voice on the wind and the rustling in the trees is supposed to later remind you of the idea of somebody watching at the time i wonder if it was bran rather than blood raven that did that that he went back in time to do it it would make more thematic sense if it was bran rather than blood raven but i think there's definitely an idea that of everything in westeros blood raven is mostly focused on bran star that's true video game vision quest there are a lot of tunnels would he be able to guide them through gorn's way I, I guess so. I guess he could do that too. Either one really works. You're either going through one of the tunnels, the Black Gate, or swimming around it. So those are not things a pregnant wolf would do on its own. So you have to assume that there was some fuckery about. That's right, Isabella Mago. He does hear the silence puppy. So Ghost was a green seer from the very beginning. Or skin changing. I have a theory that John and Ghost essentially skin change each other. That it's not a one-way relationship. I put that in the stream about ghost a while back i think with gray air and we talked about that so i think one obvious question here is does blood raven have any children like particularly beyond the wall i think it's unlikely that he was pretty old when he joined the night's watch he was 58 when he got exiled and he was 77 when he went missing so that's pretty old for somebody to be having children but i it's been suggested that among characters beyond the wall mance raider and craster could be his children. I think the one that works the best would be Mance Raider. You know, Mance wears Blood Raven's colors. He has a helm evocative of Blood Raven. They seem to have character traits, for instance, that Mance loves wearing disguises. He loves wearing false names and sneaking into places. So if you're looking, a lot of people think that Rhaegar is like Mance, but actually he's closer to Blood Raven. He's like a more honorable version of Blood Raven. So if you want some good tinfoil from the stream, there you go. Mance Raider is Blood Raven's son. He's the crow that got the woman beyond the wall pregnant. Mark it down. <laughs> the rules of the wall are very strange, and I don't pretend to understand them. George only knows them, and he's not telling. So what can or can't happen is probably less important than the plot reason behind it, basically. So I think the a major question that comes up about Blood Raven, what I talked about at the beginning, is like, what can he actually do? Like. What is Blood Raven's powers? What can he affect? We know that when he later resurfaces the Three-Eyed Crow, he's sending dreams to Bran Stark to lure him north after the opening of his, of his third eye. We also know that he's probably responsible for a lot of the prophetic dreams that are being sent across Westeros, like to Jojen Reed, maybe Howland Reed talking to him in the Isle of Faces. Ghost of High Heart a lot more. But he's also become one with the trees that the roots are growing throughout his body. So he's effectively he's effectively undead at this point. That he's essentially like a wood white, I guess if you want to call him that, a weirwood white. In the sense that he cannot survive without the weirwoods. Like he literally has a tree growing through his eye socket. They did that for the original Blood Raven in the show, but when they cast Max von Sydow, they kind of removed the grizzly parts of it, but he basically has roots growing through all throughout his body. If you took him off of the weirwoods, he would instantly die. You can also assume that It was during this time that he became fully convinced that the others are not only real, but a threat and that he must deal with them. And when Blood Raven deals with things, uh, he tends to create a bit of messes. His powers of surveillance, though, 
have increased unbelievably. A Thousand Eyes and One don't begin to are such an understatement of what he becomes after he joins the Weirwoods, as he can not only see literally anywhere that he wants to, basically, unless there's like certain spots he can't see through, like maybe Bravos or something like that, but he can also see back in time. You know, Bran experiences his Weirwood visions. Bloodraven does the same, and we know that he actually did try to change the past at one point. This is the quote, and he said, this is talking about when Bran saw Ned and called out to him. This is Bloodraven responding. He said, he heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling, a rustling among the leaves. You cannot speak to him, try as you might. I know, I had my own ghost, Bran. A brother I loved, a brother I hated, a woman I desired. Through the trees, I see them still, but no word of mine has ever reached them. The past remains the past. We can learn from it, but we cannot change it. So if Bloodraven knows he cannot change the past, it means he has tried to. You have to imagine that's one of the first things that happens when somebody gets hooked up to these powers or like, well, I could see in the past. Can I can I make can I make changes to it? And Bloodraven saying, no, you cannot change it and found that he that it doesn't work. Or it may be more precise to say that you can change the past, but because it's a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey, the timeline itself doesn't change, that it's a time principle rather than rather than changing anything. The idea is essentially that Blood Raven always tried to do whatever he did. Like maybe he always tried to stop Damon Blackfire earlier. Maybe he always tried to get messages to himself to help him catch Bittersteel and Damon earlier in their life or to convince Shiera to, to be with him. But future Blood Raven already did that. So therefore, essentially, when he does it in the future, he's completing actions that happen to his past self in a sense. It's like with uh, Hodor. If you think about it, Hodor has always been Hodor. There's not a timeline that Bran has experienced where he wasn't mind destroyed by time travel, basically. Future Bran has always done it. Past Bran has always seen it. It's a loop. Nothing changed, basically. George has written, although to be more precise about this, George has written about different methods of time travel before. In Unsound Variations, his... His story about chess, he uses multiple universes, essentially. And then in Under Siege, he uses what I was just talking about, which is called the time pretzel, I guess. It seems to be the that Bloodraven is talking about the pretzel method, where, spoilers for Under Siege, when the quote-unquote geeks go back in time under the direction of the military, the leaders are always confused why their time travel machinations never do anything, nothing changes in the present, and it's revealed because... They always made those changes. So the timeline they're in now has them already baked in. It's essentially just fulfilling your destiny of what your future self did. It's complicated to think about. It kind of hurts your head. But that's basically what Bloodraven's relationship to it is. However, there are limits on Bloodraven as a character. He, I don't think he can see the future better than anyone else. The idea of visions and guesses and that kind of thing. You can assume that he has close to perfect perception of the past and the present, but not what's going to happen in the future. Otherwise, for instance, he would not have failed apprentices. Essentially, there wouldn't if he could if he could accurately see the future, then there then things would have gone better for him, I guess. And there's but there's also a time dilation problem that I think that people overlook with Blood Raven. He can see anywhere, anytime. For argument's sake, he can do those things, but he can't see everywhere at once. It's the same problem as a glass candle. You still experience time at the same rate as it's happening. 
in the past for Blood Raven is the same as the minute in the in the present. So he has access to everything, but not he can't be there at all times. He still has to know intelligently where he's looking and at the right time to find information. He doesn't have eyes in every room. He can still only see one room at a time, but he has to know which ones to choose. And that's, that's, that's kind of, but whatever blood Raven does, it does not really seem to work. Like for instance, the others have returned. They're back. They've required bodies. So if he was trying to prevent them from coming back to power, well, swing and miss on that one. He sucked at the other suggestion is that maybe like Damon Blackfire, he allowed them to return or he pushed them to return. We know through his normal operation that his tendency is to let threats emerge or he pushes them to emerging with his brutal tactics, creating his own enemies. So there's there's a possibility that the others we're not planning to invade anytime soon, but Blood Raven essentially attacked them and saw that they were a threat and used everything he had to try and get rid of them. And they're responding to Blood Raven's aggression. And there's a lot of things going on in the north that you have to assume that Blood Raven is essentially allowing to happen. Like for instance, for instance, Craster's Keep and giving up his children to the cold gods in his backyard. Why has Blood Raven not killed Craster at this point? Why isn't he sent cold hands to slit the guy's throat and let his wives escape? His suggestion is that the others are protecting him, I guess. That's sort of what Craster infers. But there had to be more he can do to stop them, to stop Craster from helping them return. So ask the question, does Blood Raven want the others to return? Or is it more that his his resources to affect on the ground military action are far more limited than they've ever been that he can see everything but he can't do anything about it kind of like duran martell why hasn't anyone killed craster at this point well we know that night's watch hasn't and we know why the wildlings have it but there's no explanation why the children of the forest and blood raven haven't essentially found a way to wipe him out it seems like seems like they're allowing it to happen but we the children of the forest basically don't have an army they basically only seem to have cold hands as someone that can act for them outside the cave. And then we also know that the others have camped the undead around the cave. So this sort of speaks to the idea that the others have been taking defensive measures against Bloodraven and the Children of the Forest to make sure that, that he, they can't do anything, that maybe they're aware they're a threat. So I think in terms of his powers, I think those are important things to keep in mind. He may have limited ability to act. But there are there seem to be certain things around him that he's either creating or allowing to exist, in particular, the rise of the others. If he could have stopped them, you have to assume he would have. So let's go ahead and talk about like what he want. What's what's he doing now? What does he want with Bran Stark? Uh, there's a few different possibilities. Number one that comes up is the idea of a body snatching. That Blood Raven is essentially going to human skin change Bran, much like Vermeer did tried to do to Thistle take his body and live on. This comes with an added bonus that maybe Blood Raven is not quote unquote Blood Brendan Rivers anymore, that he also has had his mind taken over, that there's somebody else in his body. I think that's less likely because we know he has all of his memories still, but you never know. George has introduced the idea of human skin changing, so I don't think it's off the table. I just don't think that's what Blood Raven's trying to do. But something something interesting to think about. If he could leave his body, if he could escape the Weirwood Cave, would he do it? That is definitely something George wants you to think about, which is a horrifying idea, but he's 
put it in many of his other stories. Like, for instance, the pear-shaped man, if you've ever read that, it's sort of a horror story where that does literally happen, where two consciousnesses forcibly change minds and ends up being a predatory thing, suggesting that there's, in a world with human skin changing, somebody could indefinitely live forever, basically, by continually stealing bodies. That also happens in the glass candle. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think he's doing that for a song of ice and fire, but I think he's toying with the idea. It'd be hard to say where it's going at that point, especially because brand continues as a POV. So that doesn't really work with the POV structure. Like his POV would end. It would be somebody else. Oh, what did I say? Yeah. The glass flower. What story did I say? My, my, my tongue may have gotten ahead of my mind there. So another possibility is kind of a training replacement this is the 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 most common one there's a bunch of quotes here that essentially bud raven knows that his time is almost up and that he wants brand to take over for him in whatever role he currently has one of the quotes is once you've mastered your gifts you may look where you will and see what the trees have seen be it yesterday or last year a thousand ages past men live their lives trapped in an eternal present between the mist of memory and the sea of shadow that we all know of the days to come. Certain moths live their lives, whole days, their whole lives in a day. Yet to them, that little span of time must have seen as long as years and decades to us. An oak may live 300 years, a redwood tree 3,000. A weirwood will live forever if left undisturbed. To them, seasons pass in the flutter of a moth's wing, and past and present future are one. Nor will your sight be limited to your god's wood. The singers carve trees into their heart trees to awaken them, and those are the first eyes a new green seer learns to use. But in time, you'll learn to see beyond the trees themselves. So that seems to be the most, if you're just taking Boulder even at his word, what he's doing is he's training Bran to take over for himself. That, yeah, that he's aware at some point he's going to die, maybe sometime soon. The idea, and it, I don't think it ha even has to be like a prophetic way. He knows the others know where he is. Like there's, there's skeletons and whites all around his cave. It's. It, the writing's probably on the wall with the return of the others and the marching of the of the army of the dead that his days are numbered there in the uh, Weirwood cave. I don't know if it's going to be the, like the thing from the show where it's like the hand touches Bran and then that breaks like whatever spell it is. But I don't think you have to be tuned into prophecy to know that Blood Raven's yeah, Blood Raven's screwed. Oh, super chat here from uh, Kraken Queen twenty five PLN. Thank you very much. Uh, great stream as always. Let's think like Blood Raven. Expand the realm of silly hats. Gurm Pentoshi hat for 300 likes. I don't. I've never gotten 300 likes during a live stream. If we actually get there at one point, yeah, we'll get a silly hat. We'll get an even sillier hat. Although I don't want to be a costume. Like <laughs> that's my whole shtick. Just wearing costumes all the time. I do this for fun. Um, but you you can go a little further and you can suggest that the plan is for Brand to eventually become. King of Westeros, like what happens in the show. This gets back to the same problem of how far in the future can Blood Raven really see? Is he aware that Bran Stark will become King of Westeros in the future? If he does know that, then the idea that he's had previous apprentices or failed apprentices has to be wrong because then he knows Bran is the right one. It's kind of a logical trap in that way. I can imagine that Blood Raven wished he could have used his powers more effectively and become king himself, or he basically did do that in life. But the point of what he's doing with Bran has not really been revealed yet. He's more or less giving him skills 
He hasn't given him a purpose. I imagine that's going to come much more directly on the page in the Winds of Winter. But there is one thing that's definitely missing, though, from Bloodraven's tutelage of Bran Stark, and that is morality and the reason to do things. Like, Branton got much more lessons from his father, Ed, from his father Ned, about how to be a ruler and how to rule well than he's ever get, been given from Brendan Rivers. Brendan Rivers is essentially just sort of like teaching him to throw fastballs and how to hit a curveball. That's all he's done so far. And he's wet him to the trees without explaining why he's doing it. So there's a definite sense that whatever's waiting for Bran in the future, that is being kept from him from Bloodraven. Whether it's to destroy the others, or if he's going to become a weirwood king, or he's going to, be, he's going to become like, what's his name from Dune? The, the guy, the worm emperor guy. <laughs> I've never actually read that series. I know it came out recently. Reviews are already coming out for the movie. Traides, God, what's his name? God, Emperor of Doom, Leto. If he's going to become like Leto, Atreides, or whatever the future is, it's tough to say because, yeah, Bloodraven hasn't given him that information yet. I think if you, you take the show as an example, that Bran will become a king, I think it's uncertain if that's the plan. Uh, and the idea that Bloodraven is manipulating everything, every little moment to get to that point seems to fly in the face of basically everything else we know about magical character. Yeah, you guys got it as soon as I said it. Yeah, I, I don't know the series that well. My name recognition was bad. Leto the second God Emperor. Yeah. Although fun story, I didn't I do know that at the end of Dune, it's not Leto who ends up doing it. It's a. A like clone thing of Duncan Idaho spoilers. But anyway, whoops, did I just spoil the ending of Dune for you? Whoops. Sorry about that. I tend to read ahead in things. This kind of gets to a larger point that I wanted to make about Blood Raven and how he fits into theory crafting and analysis of the books in general. In that Blood Raven is essentially, he sort of seems to be, people fit him into things as kind of a missing puzzle piece, essentially. That there's a lot of mystery within A Song of Ice and Fire about who's being controlled and why, and what Blood Raven is pushing people to do and how far his power goes. And he sort of fits in well into a lot of theories where it's like, no, I think Bran will be king, but I don't know if it's a cartoon comedy, if that's part of Bloodraven's plan, if he's trying to create Bran as king. That, that part's uncertain to me. But OK, to get back to it, basically, I think that people tend to conflate Bloodraven with George, that you can sometimes see the thing, the fingerprints of George's influence on his own story. The idea that he's thumbing the scales and making certain things happen because there are plots he wants to get to, not necessarily that they are likely or logically flow, that he's writing a fictional story. So not everything's going to flow perfectly from one to the other. And that sometimes people see these fingerprints left on the story and they notice them. And they sort of try to figure out if this is a character doing it or if it's a fingerprint of George left behind. It's essentially the idea of uh, Watsonian analysis versus Doyleist um, understandings of a story. So if you don't know what those are, basically it's about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the um, Sherlock Holmes series. Watsonian refers to John Watson, the character who's writing the Shakespeare stories. Or is it from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who literally is writing it? And the difference is, does something happen in a story because 
the actual writer wanted it to happen or some or something happening because it's something within the logic of the story that's making it happen basically that's sort of the understanding behind it which perspective are you looking in universe for explanations or are you looking at the process of writing for why something the way it is and i think the same thing happens to blood raven quite a lot where people see that the general story is leading to certain places and that characters are being manipulated to go this way or that and there's a general flow to it and people and their minds go to kind of a watsonian but did i say shakespeare i'm sorry i meant sherlock holmes so yeah people see that and they try to find an in-universe explanation for why they are happening and blood raven happens to fit that role really well because he's a mysterious character he's one with large magical powers he's one with the ability to influence a lot of characters and he has unclear motives so he kind of fits a lot of theories in a really elegant way but it doesn't mean he actually is doing those things a lot of times you may be seeing god damn it i meant sherlock holmes fuck <laughs> uh my tongue getting ahead of my head again yep sure john watson wrote shakespeare yep 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 that's a good one yeah sorry about that but anyway so i think that's a point that i, I think folks that think that blood raven's behind everything have to keep in mind that it's very easy to substitute a character like blood raven for george who ascribe the writer's intent and that he's trying to force things in particular ways doesn't mean there's a character doing it in a sense <laughs> there's a there's there's characters that talk about how the gods are always cruel and how if you want something it will never happen because the gods hate them well the gods are george basically so yeah, that does sometimes happen. It's he's writing his characters complaining about him from a outside from a doyless perspective. That's what he's doing. So that is kind of my that's my feeling on a lot of Blood Raven theories. I think he does far less than a lot of people think and a lot less than most theories assume of him. But he definitely has an effect and a large effect. I just I just don't think. The entire story is being manipulated by him in order to get to certain places. But like Melisandre and other magically minded characters, you should expect that he is using his powers. But George is essentially continuing to use the theme of the sword without the hilt towards him. It's not like when that quote is in the story. It, it's like, don't trust sorcery. It's a sword without a hilt unless you're Brendan Rivers. It should apply to him too. And we'll get a firsthand example in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring when uh, Bran essentially takes over for uh, Bloodraven at some point that we'll see what it's like from his perspective, what it's like being a three-eyed raven and that will, three-eyed crow essentially, and that will inform backwards what Bloodraven can do. Is He's going to use that in order to essentially characterize blood raven and actually larry strong who we're going to talk about next week i think has a lot of overlap with blood raven in terms of how george writes him and the way that he gets ascribed things within the story silver fox okay actually scotler rock says odin-esque and i think if you're thinking about things in terms of a a norse perspective a norse mythology the Blood Raven obviously has a lot of overlap with Odin in terms of his characterization. One eye thing, the hanging from a tree, the raven symbolism. I think it's very easy to make the case that Blood Raven is supposed to be 
about Odin, you can sort of ascribe some characteristics to him. But important, I think the overall part of Odin's story is that he creates Ragnarok by trying to prevent it. That's essentially the too long didn't read version of Norse mythology. His seeking of knowledge, his seeking of trying to stop the end of the world makes the end of the world. Like, for instance, his chaining of Loki is what creates the the idea that Loki wants to um, get revenge. It's all it's all a big circular thing. Yes, and that blood rate that Odin appears in other forms. Yes, that's true. Please George to show us Harrenhal. I would like to see more Harrenhal. So if you want to take that as the major point of Blood Raven's story, it's that he is super powerful, he's super knowledgeable, but by trying to prevent things, he creates them. I think that's kind of, that's a long-winded way of talking about him. Let me see if there are any questions I didn't get to from Patreon. Let's see here. I actually just answered this from Jimmy. He said, how much does Blood Raven play in the plot? Is he leading certain characters down plot paths? How the weirds fit in? The ones he's definitely involved with is Bran and John. Those are the characters he's most directly messing with their mind. We know that he's messing with John's mind as the Raven character, that he's probably, that he's almost certainly using Mormont's Raven as a spy within the Night's Watch. And we know Blood Raven's messing with John with uh, Bran's head, but also Jojen Reed. You could probably assume Howland Reed as well, Ghost of High Heart. There's particular markings to characters that are having Blood Raven mess with their head. And they're not that hard to figure out once what to look for. And the idea of the ravens with their one-liners, there's a lot of people that have, it's called the corn code. The idea that Mormon's raven is speaking intelligently in response to things, and therefore that that is blood raven using the, the, using the bird to speak. I think, I think that's probably right. That some of the time blood raven is spying using Mormon's Raven, and that he amuses himself by messing with the Night's Watch. Uh, Nicole uh, Roloson says, How will Blood Raven die? I imagine it'll be kind of similar to the show that the others are going to overwhelm the cave in some way and end up killing him. They clearly have marked him as an enemy. They clearly think of him as a threat, and they are taking over everything beyond the wall. They're not going to be safe for much longer. You know, he has some kind of magical barrier protecting the Weirwood tree, but. As a writer, you put in an impassable barrier in order to knock it down at some point. Is there a possibility, AJ Borkar, is there a possibility Bloodraven has a glass candle? He is better than a glass candle. He has the weirwoods. Maybe he did when he was younger, but he seems to be pretty on the ball with using green seer magic from a very young age. Yeah, it's true, Camaros. Odin trades his eye in exchange for knowledge. Same thing happens with Aemon. He loses his eyes, he loses his sight, and in exchange he gains massive amounts of knowledge. Same thing for Bloodraven, although the idea that Bloodraven only loses one eye and Aemon loses two may suggest that Aemon is wiser, if you want to take that literally, than Bloodraven. Oh, I got a bunch here from Maura Lee. I said I would get to these, and Maura, I'm doing it. Here we go. I'm going to, this is not the last Bloodraven stream, by the way. I just wanted to get to the, this stream is mostly about how he became the three-eyed raven and his time between the ending of being hand to the king and becoming that character and taking his current role we're going to get into more what he wants and what he's doing in the winds of winter in a future stream so question here how much does blood raven know about john snow's heritage and how much of it is any that he shared with maester aemon when john came to live with the brothers of night watch i would ex i would assume blood raven knows everything about john snow heritage that he's aware of rlj that he's aware of everything that happened in Robert's Rebellion, that he was watching closely. Because that's all he can really do. He can watch closely south of the wall. 
and he's probably looking for the prince that was promised uh, much in this way he's looking for Bran stark his focus on john using mormon's raven as well seems to be indicative that he has realized who john is and he's trying to essentially help him along the way and in fact the raven does try and help john quite a bit i think he warns him doesn't the raven warn john about the un- upcoming stabbing along with melisandre and john just ignores both of them and gets stabbed i think that's that's pretty indicative of or john dreams at one of the two i think that's indicative of the why can blood raven control everything well if john snow died that would probably be a a big swing and a miss on and being able to manipulate everything perfectly a question two from Mora: what does blood raven think of young griff does he even know that young griff even exists and is even ready now getting ready to land in king's Landing or take back the iron throne for the targaryens or is blood raven too far gone as a tree wizard being absorbed into the weirwoods network to care about what is happening in king's landing that's a good question about what kind of tabs he's keeping within the larger realm. If he knows RLJ, then he probably could figure out that young Griff is fake if he wanted to, but it doesn't really seem like he's spending a lot of his time looking that far south. Like I, I know there are suggestions that he's from afar manipulating King's Landing and he's screwing with everybody's head to get them to do what he wants, but it seems like he's really focused in on North of the Wall, the Night's Watch. Bran and John in particular, and less so the politics of the rest of the realm. It doesn't mean he's not aware of them, but if you're looking for the signature signs of him being involved with other characters, they largely aren't there. He seems to be more working on a different level of plan. But his perspective, I think the idea that he's like a tree wizard being too far gone and his ability to care about smaller things is definitely true. He's saying things on a a larger setting but he's seeing things um, from a different perspective a younger blood raven would definitely care about the machinations of the individual court around king's landing but i don't i don't think blood raven's paying attention to that he will in the future though i mean he's probably keeping tabs on daenerys when he can and he's interested in the dragons and when they're going to show up but that's actually one character to look out for is to go back and look at the dreams that danny has had and see if blood raven has been trying to mess with her brain. There's definitely a suggestion that the last candles are doing it, but there's no reason there's no reason I can think of why Blood Raven would not be able to reach into Essos to spy on Danny and see how she's doing. So let's see here. A question three from Morley. Blood Raven is currently in the process of training Bran to be the next three-eyed crow slash tree wizard. What visions do you think Bran will have that will help them and us the readers to gain deeper insight about the others and how to eventually push back ice? Well, Bran's visions help give us more insights. The lands of always winter, fighting Uncle Benjamin, finally defeat the others. I think the winds of winter Bran's chapters are going to be fascinating. I think George is clearly going to use them as lore dumps for the other characters. Bran's ability to see more into history and to see around the world and to reveal certain information is very much going to be a theme for him in the next book. And in particular, that he's going to learn the things that blood raven knows they kind of shortcutted that in the show where he like went around and showed him rlj and he showed him the tower joy and stuff like that but he's probably going to show him that stuff he's probably going to show him summer hall maybe i don't know if george is going to want to spoil that if he uh, if he thinks he's going to get to the rest of the Dunkin' egg books then he probably won't want to put summer hall on the on the agenda he might show him the uh, the wolves 
the uh, the direwolves like meeting Bran, like seeing that from an outside perspective. But you know, I definitely think that Bran's chapters are going to be pretty much they're going to be focused a lot on lore dumping to set up a dream of spring and for understanding the perspective of Blood Raven in particular. Because right, yeah, right now it's basically just been how to. If, if you think about like the weirwood tree as like a computer, he's been teaching Bran how to type on it and how to use the mouse and how to use Windows. He hasn't showed him why to do it yet. So that will be a big part of it. Definitely information about the others. Brands, we should expect to see their creation from Brand's perspective. Uh, question five from Morley. Blood Raven is killed by the Night King and the others on the show. How do you think you'll meet his end in the book somewhere? I don't know if there's a Night King, but it seems pretty, pretty straightforward that he's in danger from the others and that they think he could die whether or not it's like a revenge thing like it is in the show or how hold the door will be specifically put on the page i think the broader plot points of that are pretty similar um okay last one for morally blood raven is truly an enig enigmatic character in the books what further mysteries do you think he will help brand uncover that have yet to be revealed in the books that the fans of song of ice and fire want to see We'll want to know about moving forward. I think I just talked about most of those, mostly about RLJ, mostly about Rhaegar and Lyanna, the current relevant stuff, the creation of the others, maybe um, stuff about Craster, where they are, that kind of thing. Those are the big mysteries left to be put on the page. And if Howland Reed doesn't do it, it's going to be up to Bran. When we finally get to see the Isle of Faces and the goings on there, that's something the show did not cover that you should expect to see a lot more from the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. The Green Men of the Isle of Faces, history there, maybe the pact, the original pact between the humans and the children, the Hammer of Waters, that kind of stuff. I would expect a lot of that to be covered, that Bran's essentially going to flip through history. Actually, that's something that me and uh, Maester Mario were talking about in the Dying of the Light read-through, especially in chapters four and five, which came out this month, that George loves to, he loves these kind of lore dumps. He's got a lot better about doing them, but he's run out of time. And there is a thesis in Dying of the Light about the history of High Cavalar and then an extended sequence of two characters talking about it. And I expect that will be something similar to Bran, that he knows he has information he has to put in. He only has two books left, supposedly. So that's kind of where he's going to put them. Oh, maybe I'll do a video about this at some point, but I definitely don't think there's a difference between a Three-Eyed Crow and Bloodraven or Brynden Rivers. I think, like I talked about earlier, that's an artifact of the fact that Bloodraven, aka Brynden Rivers as a character, was invented much later than the Three-Eyed Crow. And actually, they George addresses this in the text when Bran makes up the name the Three-Eyed Crow, and everyone's confused at what he's talking about. And then essentially, he admits to himself, he's like, oh yeah, that's just kind of a name I gave him. That's not really... That's not his name. Everyone else knows him by different names. They know him as the last green seer. They know him as Lord Rivers, Lord Brynden. They know him as, you know, you know, Brynden Rivers, all those other names that the, and people, I know the common pushback to that is, well, doesn't Blood Raven know he appears as a three-eyed crow? And I don't think he does. Or if he does, that's probably not the name he would use. You know, I think his confusion and the Children of the Forest confusion at Bran's insistence that he's looking for a three-eyed crow is a little strange to them. They know him by a different name. I think that's all it is. And it's just kind of a, a, a challenge that George didn't do that smoothly 
where I think if he had written a song of ice and fire with the character Brendan rivers in his head from the beginning, it would have been a three eyed Raven from the very beginning and not a three eyed crow because it, it just makes things a little bit confusing. I think he tried to essentially smooth that over by making sure that he wrote in the history that uh, Brendan rivers was a Lord commander of the night's watch and a crow, AKA a night's watchman. But uh, I think for some readers, they noticed the incontinuity and decided it was a theory instead of George not being as smooth as he normally is. Kind of like the idea of Blood Raven, how he fits into so many theories where it's they're noticing thing they're noticing patterns of George within his story, and rather than rather than understanding that they those are just sort of artifacts of the way he writes rather than an in-universe mystery to solve. That's basically my perspective. Yeah, <laughs> Guilty Undertaker. <laughs> my weirwood Sona. Oh, God, yeah. Very strange. I, I, I've never really... I remember reading that and just going like... And I read the explanation and then like the different names and Blood Raven being confused. And it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Brand, we go back and read it. Bran literally made up the name. Nobody told him that's what to call the Three-Eyed Crow. That's just the name he gave it. Because that's what he saw. It, that doesn't mean it's his name. I think we'll get more into the metaphysical and King Bran and all that other kind of stuff in a future live stream. Any last questions you guys have? At me, throw them in the chat. I know I've been talking straight for quite a long time here. I'm sure I missed things you guys were talking about. This is by we're gonna do more content on Blood Raven, so don't you worry. If we didn't get to it today, we'll get to another day. We really didn't talk about Bran and and Blood Raven's interactions in the cave. And I really want to explore that stuff more. So don't worry about it if we didn't get to it. But yeah, what do you got? Hope I got to, I think I got to all the patron questions. Uh, somebody believes in NA plus J? Ned plus Ashari goes John? Yeah, that one's not happening. I'm sorry to say it is RLJ. Thanks for fun fan fiction though. Jay Meezy, what do you, what significance do you think Blood and Raven and Bran will have in Theon's fate? I think there's definitely a connection you can make between the way that Blood Raven's using cold hands and the way that theon's using i mean that bran is using theon that that theon's sort of kind of like an undead character at this point that he's that there's similarities in the purpose they're using them for like the ability of a servant of the old gods to act on the ground that bran has essentially convinced theon that he is the old gods and not himself so i would expect to see more of what happened to cold hands to theon i think those are linked oh uh, you were you were ignoring work to watch tinfoil tyrant i know the feeling i know the feeling for other people's content dornish dame does blood raven know when he went on the last ranging that he wouldn't be returning him so did he share that information with aemon i think that's an open question i think the way that george has written it so aemon never talks about blood raven suggests that there was an argument before he left and then he did it on purpose but i can definitely see the opposite idea that blood raven did not intend to go join the weirwoods and that maybe the others attacked him or maybe he got caught out in a storm or something like that and they saved him by plugging into the weirwoods both could be good both could be both have their positives and negatives but i think the way that aemon is ignoring blood raven's existence in the chapters where he would be relevant suggests that there was a falling out between him and Bloodraven. AJ Bokar, will you cover what happens to the people that have followed Bloodraven to the wall, his talons? I don't think we know much about them. They just kind of, they probably just helped him get elected and then we don't really know much else. 
There's always been a suggestion that Cold Hands is one of the Raven's teeth, a Blood Raven essentially, or the children raised into undeath to serve him forever. I have my own thoughts about who Blood, about who Cold Hands is. Um, I think people get caught up on the idea that he died long ago and trying to understand what that means. I think the clues are much more uh, surface level on who he is, but that's generally the only speculation about what happened to the Raven's teeth. That one of them is cold hands, perhaps. Will Theon become another Hodor from Guilty Undertaker? I think that he's I definitely in the show, that's how Bran used him at the end. He used him as bait and he used him as a delay tactic to give Arya time to stab the Night King. But I think the core of that is probably true from what we've seen from Theon in A Dance with Dragons and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, that that Bran successfully pretending to be the Weirwoods has sort of radicalized Theon. And that he's going to do basically whatever Bran says from here on out. There's been a suggestion that Theon may end up becoming Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. He's thought about that quite a bit. Maybe that's his future. But for now, it seems like that Theon has essentially found religion in the old gods. And yeah, actually, if Hodor dies, Bran's going to need somebody else to do the stuff he wants around the world. That's sort of the problem with Bloodraven as a character. He doesn't have boots on the ground to do anything. He has to convince people using like my manipulation and dreams to do things for him. And that creates a lot of problems. There's nobody carrying out his orders anywhere except for maybe cold hands. That seems to be about it. We came just shy of 200 likes. Went a little bit over today. I want to thank you guys all for, for hanging out, talking some blood raven today. Got my hat on at a jaunty angle. Thanks to Kraken Queen, the happy masquerader, Smith the crazy. No, 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 no. Greer Gladney, Jaded Redhead, Maura Lee, Ramona Zamfir, Danny McKay. And did I get any new patrons since last week? Nope, doesn't look like it. Also to all my patrons. And if you guys want to check out more about Blood Raven, I did a stream with uh, Aziz of History of Westeros. I think, I, f I forget what I titled it. I think I put it in the description. If not, it should be easy to find. I put it on Twitter. Next week, we'll be talking about Lara Strong because I think there's a lot of similarities between the two characters, not magically, but how they function in the story that I think helps understand what Laris will be doing in, in House of the Dragon and Fire and Blood. Oh, we got 200? All right, we'll do this just for the last few minutes here as I'm doing my outro. We're doing it. My very fancy wizard hat has made its reappearance. Oh man, it doesn't fit as well when I cut my hair. <laughs> my hair's short, so it doesn't, it's a little bit bigger than it used to be. Now it's like sliding down my face. <laughs> I guess I need to uh, make my hair grow a little bit longer so it fits correctly. Oh, wait. How's it go? Kind of like that. There we go. Wizard hat. Thank you guys for 200 likes. Uh, thanks for hanging out today. Look forward to Lara Strong next week. Like silly wizard hat. Yeah, make sure you like, subscribe. If you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash joemagician where you can get access to content early, patron-only content like the Dying the Light read-through I've been talking about, along with a few others like Eliana and I of Girls Gone Canon a little while ago did a thing about cripples, bastards, and broken things as an analysis. There are a few others on there too. Also, Meat House Man and a Sand Kings from George R. R. Martin. The only reason you're here is for the hat. I'm glad we got it for you. 